imagine the scene. It's a crisp fall day, back beyond a local high school. And it's the first track meet of the year. Three schools are competing, three different high schools. And the 400 meter run has just begun. It's one lap around the track. The runners are off. And as they come around the first curve and down the back stretch, everyone watching has a great view of what's going on. And their attention is drawn to one runner. He's near the back of the pack, maybe behind five or six other runners, but he's gaining. He's steadily picking up speed and he's passing one, two, three, four other runners. The race has suddenly become exciting. The runners come around the last turn. It's neck and neck. And this runner hears fans. He hears friends calling his name, urging him on. Even a popular girl or two whose voices he recognizes and whose attention he would die for are calling his name and cheering him on. He doesn't come in first. He doesn't quite have enough left in the tank, but he... Me, actually, I was that runner. I finished a solid second place for my school. More importantly, though, I am so excited. I, who had run track already for two years and had never uh, before finished in the top three of any race, who had uh, never had just about anyone except maybe my parents cheer for me in a race, let alone some popular girls, had just had this experience. I had come in second place. I had attention. I had been noticed. I was almost a minor hero for that brief moment. And you can be sure that as a result of that experience, I was motivated to train that year. Maybe if I trained extra hard, I could come in first place. Well, that's what today's passage is about, that motivation to train and to win. We're we're moving now in our series on transformation to the topic of training. We've been um, looking at how transformation happens in our lives. And we started with identity, that we have to know who we are. That if we follow Jesus Christ, we're no longer slaves to our sinful desires. We're royal sons and daughters of God the Father, God the King. We're beloved. We're chosen for a purpose. We're going to one day inherit the whole creation. And even now, we have a role in restoring God's creation and working for the redemption of his creation and the people he created, the redemption of those in this world. And boy, that role is very poignant for us right now. And we need to remember the purpose God has given us in the world. And so we seek to be transformed first because of who we are, because of our identity. We seek to live up to our royal identity and to our royal destiny as people who are set on a hill who are to be light in a dark world. Second, after we looked for a couple of weeks at our identity, we looked at sensitivity, the, the importance of, of being sensitive to God's voice. Since God has initiated our transformation and God has good plans for us and dreams for us, his children, we need to pay attention to what God's plans are by listening to God's word, by being led by God's spirit. And so we spent two weeks on sensitivity looking at how we need to grow in being sensitive to God's guiding. And now this week and next, we turn to training. 
transformation doesn't usually happen by God waving his magic wand over us and presto, humble Cinderella turns into a royal princess, but rather God leads us through a process, a, a growth process. And there's work, there's effort involved and required on our part for this to happen. Just like there was effort required on my part to become a better and a faster runner. And, and so we turn to the topic of training. And in our passage today, the Apostle Paul challenges us to put our best efforts into it. Paul here is writing to a group of Jesus followers in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And these folks are Paul's problem children. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul has to correct them on a number of topics. And, and one of them has to do with the attitude that they have, which to translate it to modern terms is this idea that God loves me, Jesus has forgiven me, I'm saved by grace, so I can really just do whatever I want. I, it, it really doesn't matter what I do because God will forgive me. I, I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm good. My, my behavior doesn't matter so much because God's love is so much bigger than any little sin I might commit. And so the Corinthians are not being transformed. And the result among them is strife and it's chaos and it's conflict in their community. They're being selfish. People are being hurt. It's a toxic culture in their church. And Paul is trying to impress on them that as much as, as he's an apostle of God's grace and he wants them to rest in God's grace and put it first, that they're missing the point of that grace. They're missing the point of their salvation. Salvation isn't just meant to wipe away the consequences of their sin. God has saved them also so they will change, so they will stop sinning. They're royal children of God now, so they should start acting like their royal father, not like royal spoiled brats. And, you know, th this is still an issue today where, where people can get so focused on, on God's grace and so worried lest they fall into trying to be saved by their own works instead of by God's grace that some people can get allergic to exercising any spiritual effort. Dallas Willard, the late uh, Christian philosopher and writer from USC, he provides a helpful correction to this. He says, grace is opposed to earning, you can't earn God's love or forgiveness at all. We're saved by grace as a free gift. Grace is opposed to earning, but grace is totally compatible with effort. Opposed to earning, yes, but opposed to effort, no. In fact, being saved involves effort. After all, we aren't saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We don't ever earn our identity as God's children. We receive that as a gift. But now that we are God's children, we're meant to grow and to change, to be more like our Heavenly Father. And that takes effort. So Paul says, think of it like a race. The stands are full, the, the crowds are cheering. The runners are at the starting line, and likely it's the Olympics that Paul has in mind here. He's writing to a city in Greece, right? 
And uh, the historians, historians tell us that the Olympic Games, by the time Paul's writing, had already been happening for 800 years in Greece. So what's the goal of the Olympic runners? It's to win the race. It's to stand there at the end before the, the cheering crowds and to receive the Stephanus, the laurel wreath that they gave victors back then. They didn't have gold and silver and bronze medals at that time. What you ran for was the victor's crown. It was a laurel wreath and all the, the honor and the fame that came with receiving that crown. Everyone would know your name. If you were a guy, the popular girls would be talking about you. You'd be a famous champion. And Paul says, that's your goal as a follower of Jesus too. So run so as to win the prize. Only the prize is not a laurel wreath, which withers and, and fades with time. And so does the fame and the excitement, because in a few years there'll be another games with another champion, and soon you'll be forgotten. No, Paul says, the prize in the Christian race is far better we're competing for a victor's crown which never fades or perishes. Imagine an endless party, an endless celebration where we are noticed, where we are loved, where we are encouraged, we are rewarded, we are celebrated, and we notice and love and encourage and celebrate others as well. And, and this thanksgiving and the celebration never ends. As we saw last Sunday, remember, Jesus used the image of, of harvest time, of, of a field ripe for harvest, which for farmers and agricultural communities, once the harvest was brought in, the harvest meant payday, it meant vacation time, it meant celebration, it meant good times. That's what we have to look forward to. That's where transformation takes us when we're made new to be more like Jesus, and eventually the world is made new and made perfect. And we all get to enjoy it together. And so run for that, Paul says. Compete for that. It's a prize which never fades and that can't be taken away from you. So what does it take, Paul continues? What does it take to win? It takes training. I did, I did a little research and I found out that to qualify to participate in the ancient Olympics, a runner or a, an athlete had to enroll in at least 10 months of strict training leading up to the games. As Paul puts it in verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. The Greek phrase for strict training here can also be translated to, to exercise self-control in everything. Right? Just, have you ever seen those, those features during the Olympics on how much the athletes train? They get up early. They train for hours every day, practicing techniques over and over again, hours in the, the weight room and running, strength, conditioning, endurance, mental coaching, focus, strict diet. If you want to win, you've got to train harder and better than how everyone else is training. And so Paul says in verse 26, he says about himself, I don't run, I don't live aimlessly with, with no purpose, with no goal. And then Paul, as he's wont to do, he switches the metaphor. He says, 
I don't box just just swinging at the air wildly, missing my opponent all the time because I've got no aim, I've got no technique. No, I beat my body. And Paul's not talking about self-flagellation here. He's talking about discipline. In fact, this phrase could also be translated, I treat my body roughly or, or I treat my body with discipline. The point is, just like an athlete, he, he doesn't, Paul doesn't pamper himself. Rather, he pushes himself, he stretches himself, he strengthens himself, he trains himself so that he'll win the prize. You've heard the phrase, right? Eyes on the prize. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying if you want the prize, you're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to train. So let's get practical now. How do we train spiritually? We saw how we train physically. How do we train spiritually? Well, to keep it simple, let me give you two ways that we can train. One is by saying yes to certain things. And two is by saying no to certain other things. When, when I was a runner in high school, <laughs> these aren't the shoes I wore, but brought my running shoes. Um, I had to say no to unhealthy foods. I had to say no to drugs, to, to alcohol, to going over to a friend's house after school when I had track practice. I also had to say yes to seven mile runs and wind sprints and time in the weight room. And, and there are spiritual equivalents to each of these. There, there are spiritual equivalents to what we need to say yes to and what we need to say no to. Next week, we'll look at the things that we say yes to. Uh, but this week, let's focus on the things that we say no to. If we want to be transformed, we're going to have to train. And training requires learning to say no. Now, obviously, it means saying no to behaviors, to choices which are clearly wrong and sinful. But less obviously, maybe, spiritual training also involves saying no to things that are not wrong in themselves, but that are not going to get us where we want to go. For example, I remember several years back, Mark Teixeira, who at the time was the, the star first baseman of the New York Yankees, he was battling injury. He was battling inflammation as he was aging a bit. And he was trying to get his body back into top form. And so he went on a low inflammation diet, which included no gluten. No gluten. <laughs> and... and it was painful for him, but it helped him a lot in his recovery, and he felt a lot better physically as a result of it. Gluten wasn't wrong in itself, but for, for this athlete, for Mark Teixeira, getting back to top form, which was the prize he was seeking, meant saying no to gluten. So how does this apply to transformation? Well, Enoch Ataboya, who has led revivals in Nigeria, he gives an interesting analogy. He says, imagine a house full of children, children full of needs, full of wants. One wants ice cream, another wants to go to the park, a third wants some screen time on the iPad. And, and you're the parent or you're the caregiver in this house full of children. And if you never say no to any of them or to all of their wants, they will wear you down. They'll have you constantly hopping. They'll have you waiting on them hand and foot. They'll have you asking for treats and special things all the time. 
And so if you're gonna create a safe, calm, and sustainable environment for yourself and for them, you're going to have to change and to set some boundaries and to say no to some things. And here's what happens when you do. When you start saying no to one child, the other kids hear it too, at least the ones that are listening who aren't running around the house yelling. And, and over time, as the kids hear you saying no, they learn that you are in charge and that everyone can't just have whatever they want. And all the kids over time begin to calm down a little bit and they fall into the expectations that you set for them. Here's the thing, we are like that house full of kids. The kids are our desires and our wants and our appetites, which are clamoring inside of us, asking for this, asking for that. And we each have different appetites which whine most loudly for us. For some of us, it's something sweet. For others of us, it's alcohol. Or for others, pornography or lust. Or maybe it's having the attention of other people. Or maybe it's shopping. Or, or maybe it's social media. Whatever it is. And it's not that all these appetites are wrong in themselves. Some of them are. Others aren't. But the bigger question is, do we have control of our appetites? Or are they like children running wild in us? So here's the application for transformation. We have to learn, we have to practice saying no to our appetites. And, and here's what Ataboya says. He says, by saying no to one of them, you empower yourself to say no to all of them. I like the way Dallas Willard puts it. He says, say no to the things you can so you can learn to say no to the things that you can't. Say no to the things that you can now, so in time you can learn to say no to the things that right now you can't. Start with the low-hanging fruit. Start by fighting the easier battles. Begin to train. Learn to say no. Ask God where to start, right? We've been talking about sensitivity. Exercise muscles of self-control where you can, and as God leads you and puts on your heart to do, build those up. Say no to those things to increase your inner strength so then in time you'll begin to be able to say no to the things you find harder right now. Begin to rein in those unruly children one by one until there's peace and there's order in your inner house. Isn't that what you want, an inner life that's at peace and in order? The, the classic Christian way of, of doing this is fasting whether it's going for a day or more without food or just a meal, or whether it's giving up something for Lent, like some of us are doing right now. It's saying no to one unruly child, one appetite, one desire, in order to build up your muscles of self-control to bring your desires, your appetites into healthy order. It's, it's spiritual training. It's building our capacity our inner strength to be able to say no to whatever else we may need to be able to say no to in the future. Author Mike Breen calls it indirect effort. He writes, if there's an appetite in your life that is not controlled, very often the way to deal with it is through indirect effort. 
I love how another pastor, Walter Karlstadt, explains how to do this. He says, don't just try, train. If you try to pick up a 200-pound weight and you just can't, what should you do? Should you just keep trying harder? No, you should go to the gym and start training with 100 pounds and then work your way up to 150 and then eventually build your muscles until you can handle that 200-pounder. And so transformation requires spiritual training. It requires saying no. It requires fasting. It requires saying no to our desires, giving things up, building up our muscles of self-control. Here's how I'm doing this during this, this Lent season. Because it isn't just our appetites. It isn't just our desires that we have to get a handle on if we want to be transformed to win the prize. It's also our attention and our focus, what we pay attention to and what we dwell on. Do we focus on what's good and godly? Do we focus on what's true and beautiful? Do we focus on Jesus? Are are we focused on the prize that we're running for? Or are we distracted by a hundred lesser things? Well, I've shared with you before um, lately that I've I've been feeling like my smartphone was distracting me with a hundred lesser things. It was becoming too much of a a distraction. I found myself picking it up for no reason, um, aimlessly scrolling through my apps, looking for those little red notification dots. Um, Sometimes just picking it up, thinking I'll quickly check the news, I'll, I'll check email, I'll check the sports highlight, whatever, just for a minute. And before I knew it, an hour had gone past. And I realized I was spending less time praying and reading the Bible, and doing other things that would actually be more enjoyable, and fulfilling, and healthy. I I was finding, when when I finally put down my phone, I felt more empty, or worried, than when I'd picked it up. Have any of you had that experience watching the news lately, where, where you, you, we get addicted to it, right? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's all hype, it's all concern, and, and it's valid to know what's going on in the news, but, but it becomes something that, that, it becomes addicting and, and our level of peace and our level of faith go down, down, down and our level of anxiety and worry and fear go up, up, up. Um, I was also finding that my attention when I was on my phone was, was being focused by all the ads that I was coming across, which were tailored just for me. <laughs> um, and, and so now I wanted things that I hadn't realized I wanted before I was on my phone. And so I gave up my phone for Lent. It's been on my dresser since February 26th, except when I've absolutely had to to go somewhere where I needed to have a phone on me. Um, And I check my texts once or twice a day uh, to see if there's anything important to deal with, which is really just to be considerate to other people. But other than that, no phone. And um, that's not because having a phone is wrong but because I needed to train my appetites, my desires, because I was losing the ability to say no to my phone. And I also needed to train my attention because my phone was distracting me with, with a thousand petty things, most of which don't really matter. And, and so I was paying less attention to what matters most. I was losing touch with it. So, so guess what I find myself doing now that I have no phone at night? Reading a Christian book, reading my Bible more, thinking about God, thinking how to trust God, 
which would be good for all of us to be doing right now in, in this time that we're, we're living in. Also, uh, without my phone, I'm, I'm able to pay better attention to Anne when she talks to me. Or, or when I have a few minutes, I'm waiting, so I'm out running errands and, and I'm waiting somewhere between errands or whatever, and I don't have my phone to you know, check email or scroll through. Again, I find myself praying, talking to God for those couple minutes. Now, again, having a phone isn't wrong, but, but if I'm training so I can run to win the prize, if my goal is transformation, then I need to say no to what's not helping me get there. Whether it's appetites or whether it's attentions. Of course, when I am faced with, with the temptation to do something that's clearly sinful, I, I need to say no to that as well. And if I fail, if, if I find myself giving in repeatedly to that sin, it's all the more reason I need to train to build up my muscles of self-control and of faith. So to, to finish um, the sermon today, we have another story to tell. This one is from Ben Daniel. Originally, he wasn't going to be able to be here, so we recorded this for you. And um, since it's a good recording, we're just going to play it for you. Um, and he's going to talk about something that, that he's been saying no to and how it's been refocusing his attention on Jesus. And then after um, we hear him share by video, we're going to close with I Surrender All. So let me see if I can get this video going for us. I recently shared a story um, of an exciting event that is happening in my life right now. Um, I shared this with Dick in, in light of this, this Sunday's morning sermon. He asked that I share this with you guys. Um, and as many exciting stories, there's sometimes a backstory. And sometimes that backstory there's a little dirt in it. So I'm going to share a little dirt of, with you. Um, it's really about my work. I work really hard, as we all do. And in my work, I'm in meetings quite often, and sometimes back-to-back -back meetings all day long. Um, and I'm running from one end of the campus that I work to the next, and it's just busy. And quite often I'm on my phone trying to answer emails as I'm running from one meeting to the next, just trying to keep up with the daily communication grind that is needed. Um, and because of the schedule, I have found that I spend virtually no time, I would argue no time, with God at my workspace. Um, there have been some occasions here and there, but by and large, it's virtually never. Um, and that's my dirty little secret. Um, and it has been a struggle. And I, so as you know, recently Lent, we're now in Lent season, and my daughter decided to give up sugar for Lent. And I thought that would be a good opportunity because 
for me to give up sugar or really sweets because as many of you know sweets are a weakness of mine I love my cookies love my candy bar my mouth is watering thinking about it right right now um, and I thought while these urges can come up it might help me to think with God or think about God um, and while that has happened, I am going to argue that something more exciting has happened. I don't really, I'm not really getting the craving so much, but what I'm finding is when I pass by the, a candy bar, you know, at a checkout station and maybe at a gas station or even at work, um, there are cookie plates on a lunch meeting or a Coke machine or a vending machine. I'm finding myself praying in those instances, not because I'm feeling the urge to eat it, but as it's turned into a trigger of, so I can spend time, a little bit of time with God. And there's a lot of sugar at work, so I'm spending a lot more time praying. And to me, that's exciting. And I'm praying not specifically for one thing. Many of my prayers consist of praying for many of you guys that have shared needs with me, um, things that are on my heart at the moment, um, wisdom, etc. And to me, this is exciting because I went from virtually no time to more time. I'm not going to say it's a lot, but it's more. And to me, that's exciting. I'm spending time with God where it hasn't been before. And, and this morning I want to encourage you to find your own triggers. Whatever it may be. Maybe it's a red shirt or you see a pencil or someone's toupee. Um, something that's going to remind you, oh, I need to pray right now. Um, maybe if it's just the one sentence prayer. God knows what you, what's on your heart, but you gotta, you got to meet him. And, and with that, I, I wish you all a, a good week, and we will see you very soon.